Hello, and welcome to Mental Health Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Lang, and I'm here with Dr. Mark Burton. In this podcast, we will talk about all things mental health. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey guys, Liz Lang here with Dr. Mark Burton, and this week we're going to get into personalities. So this stems from the fact that I see personality quizzes all the time (laughs) online, like Uh on social media, and I've taken them before and I'm like, that's so general that it can apply to everybody. And, yeah, it's and like yet, going to a psychic. <laughs> yeah, but and yet people are like, "Oh, this is so accurate. This describes me to a T. This is exactly me." And yeah. sometimes they're like, you know, pick an image and we'll tell you something about yourself. And I'm just like, these images, like they're 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 preset. It has nothing to do with science. I mean, they they, they can be kind of fun sometimes. So I can see why people do them, but they're not well, based a, in that's science. That's called a projective test. Okay. I mean, there's some validity basis for the Rorschach, but we can talk about that in a minute. But, yeah. Yeah. But I, I think the, the things you probably find on the internet, I would caution our listeners that that probably ought to be for entertainment only. Is yeah. What I would say. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything. And no. so the field of personality is kind of an interesting field of study for me because I kept asking myself, why does this matter? Right? Like why are why do people make this an entire field of study? Like what information is this giving you like personality types? You know, I guess kind of the way I look at it is it's informative, but I don't know that it's really helpful in that I guess it might tell you whether or not you're going to get along with somebody. That's a, that's a really good question. Years <laughs> <So laughs> I've been doing this, I thought, I never thought of well, why do we even bother with this but it's a very good question because in the end i think one personality study of personality i think it's pretty complex Mm -hmm. and my disclaimer at the start of this is we aren't going to be able to cover everything and i i don't know that there is a consensus Mm -hmm. on you know how either how personalities are formed or how can you assess them or things like that but Going back to your question, I have to think about it. Why even do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're curious people, I suppose. And, it's, uh, and yeah, and a and, lot of the a lot of the research that they've done is it's it's interesting. It is definitely interesting, and like there's an entire field of psychology of people who just study personalities. And right. so I guess one of my big hangups is is with when you study personality, they're trying to predict the way people will act. And that's so hard to do because everybody is different. So they try to group these people. They group these people into personalities. So maybe you're like a type A personality. And so, okay, if you're a type A personality, you're going to react this way in these types of situations. And if when you're you type, say type A, you mean like assertive? That like a, Is that I, what you mean? Or are you just making so. a fictitious uh, label like a? like Like type A, like yeah. assertive, right? You have an assertive personality. And so... And that's one of the issues I think with the field. And then another one is, is people are so unique and so individual that I think you can fall into multiple category types. And I think there's different situations, right? And 
Oh, that's that's certainly true. As I was thinking about why do this, I think that we're going to talk a little bit on your outline about personality disorders. Mm-hmm. And the only benefit that I can see is if you define or have a study of personality, that then leads to maladaptive personality issues mm-hmm. like disorders. Mm-hmm. And the only thing you get from that is, I think, is to be able to label to give a diagnosis and label the disorder, which then helps you communicate between clinicians. I think that's the only thing it gives you. Yeah. I'm I'm trying really hard to think of something else that it would do for you, but it's really about diagnosis and then somehow conveying information, well, to the client, but also to other clinicians. Mm -hmm. Good question. (laughs) Yeah. of that. Right. I mean, and and again, like I said, it's really interesting. Like, and and I think what's interesting is the way personality can form. And even that, that way, you know, you can make a guess, but you don't know. Yeah. Right. right. Well, because humans are so dynamic. Yeah. And so, I mean, I consider myself an extrovert, but I've certainly been in situations where I am less extroverted because I'm I'm in a group of people that I don't relate well to. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of clam up a little bit if you're with, if you're in this group of people and you just don't have anything in common with them, then you it's normal to clam up. But, you know, most of the time I can and I can still get along with anybody, but it's just humans are too dynamic to really lump them into one true this is who you are. Well, it depends on the context. That's what you're exactly. talking about, which I think is certainly true. And this speaks to one of the theories, and we'll go over briefly these different theories, six different theories of personalities, how they're mm-hmm. formed. Is what this is called the trait theory, and they they break it into five big traits. One of them is like extroversion mm-hmm. versus introversion. It depends on the context who you're with, yeah. mm-hmm. because I I do that myself. Yeah. I, mean, I I would think clients would probably see me. Well, I don't know how they'd see me maybe more of an extrovert or maybe they wouldn't be able to make a determination, but I'm pretty much an introvert. Mm -hmm. But in certain situations, I can be as social as anyone else. It's just, would I choose to do that? You know, whereas Adrian, you know, my daughter, she, she is a true extrovert and she, she loves to be with people. That's how she recharges. And I need my alone time. So it depends on the context. You're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. Uh, So, you know, when we talk about it, I think it's important for listeners to understand. I don't know that there's, well, I know there's not a truth about personalities. There are many different ideas. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, I'm pretty sure there's no consensus about that, about what it is or how it's formed. Yeah. Well, and so when it comes to personality there, we know that there's some biological component and then there's also some environmental component or learned behavior. And I think we've talked about this before. I think with any mental, say, emotional health or mental health mm-hmm. issue, there's always the two, right? Yeah. The nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. And I think most people would agree that it's a combination of the two, of the biological and the environmental. And so I think that's certainly true. But it's really tough to break that apart and figure out, okay, what's, what's going on biologically, mm-hmm. uh, what's going on environmentally. And it's really making this guess, coming up with a theory. I mean, there, there's some basis for the theories. I'm not just yeah. suggesting that these people 
just make it up willy-nilly. Although when we talk about Freud, I think in some ways his the way he thought about personality really feels just kind of made up. But I want to say this about Freud. You know, he was kind of the first. He was, you know, a pioneer yes. in the field. And so he's not, if we think, oh, he got it right, that's just not true. And, you know, at least in graduate school, we really don't talk about him much. Mm, anyway. Interesting. And that was, that was over 20 years ago, certainly. But he's just not that big of a force because, except that he's the one who started this idea of talk therapy. I mean, that's okay. what you and then a lot of people still follow that's what they call a psychodynamic method. But honestly, I don't think it's that helpful, really. But there's still some practitioners of psychoanalytic therapy, which is his method. Yeah. And so I, and I, because I've been learning about that very recently. And I think honestly, and there's several different approaches. And so Freud, his, so Sigmund Freud, his approach comes from this idea that everybody has all of these traumatic childhood experiences that we're repressing. And that's where all of your problems come from. In a nutshell, that's kind of Freud. And I heard a lot of mixed feedback from him because he also found a way to somehow make everything sexual, like uh, all of our, (laughs) and, and I think, and that bothers a lot of people. And so, you know, I mean, we could spend an entire episode talking just about Freud. Right. And so, but, but, but again, I don't know how helpful that is because it yeah. might be interesting from an historical perspective, but you know, Freud's contribution to this is certainly what he called the e- the id, the ego and the superego. Yeah. And, you know, the superego being our moral conscience, the ego being the realistic part that mediates between the desires of the id. So, so the it is all about those desires and wants of so the sexual part. Mm-hmm. And then the ego is the thing that is the mediator between the superego and the id. But you're right. So he has the stages of what he called psychosexual development. And honestly, I think I probably studied it one time, but I can just give you the, the part. So the oral phase, the anal phase, the phallic phase, the latent phase, and the genital phase. Yep. I don't know that pe- people pay much attention to that anymore. I, really... I never did until no. now. <laughs> until well, I... I, again, it might be interesting historically, yeah. mm-hmm. but I would never say to someone, oh, you you know, it sounds like you had trouble in the general phase of your development. I, yeah. I mean, it's just not going to be helpful. And I, it, I don't think it's accurate. I mean, he certainly got the sexual stuff wrong with women. Yes. Totally wrong. Yes. So if anybody, if anybody's heard the term penis envy, Mm -hmm. that is a Freudian concept. And so I think there was somebody who she, I think they call themselves like a neo-Freudian or they they were students of Freud. So this one girl, she came up with womb envy and it was kind of like the, the female equivalent of penis Uh envy. And so penis envy is girls wonder why they don't have one and wish they did. Mm-hmm. And so men have womb envy and that they wish that they could bear and nurture children in the same way that women do. I just, I don't know. I don't think any of it's accurate. <laughs> no. And so, you know, he was psychoanalyzing a lot of different women and they had, they had the sexual fantasies and sexual mm-hmm. issues. But I think what he missed is that I'll make a general statement. I think all of them probably had some sort of sexual trauma in their life. Yeah. And he missed that entirely. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, his analysis of that is pretty inaccurate. And so I think it's just the contribution he has is that he started us all down that road of thinking, you know, and in there, a different way. So, right. And, and there are some aspects of psychoanalytics that I think can be helpful. I mean, you know, the, the idea that we all have issues from our childhood that tend to kind of creep up into our adults. That's the psychodynamic approach. That can be helpful, but that's one piece of mental health and emotional health. That's just one piece. I mean, you know, the overarching thing is is we're complex and I mean, we're all going to react differently to different situations. And so in yeah. terms in terms of personality, for every individual there is, there's a personality type, which is basically just a really roundabout way of saying everybody is unique. Right. But I think the idea of certainly issues coming from our family's origin, that's an important one. But again, mm-hmm. I would say he started that idea, let's say nowadays, I would say internal family systems mm-hmm. therapy, IFS, is much better, much more yeah. effective a way to look at that as opposed to what he did, you know, the that we repressed all these traumas from our childhood, which, I mean, in some ways that's true. A lot of us have repressed traumas. I'm not saying it yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I don't think doing psychoanalytic work is really a good way to do it. I think I mentioned, I saw a client once years ago and she was from France and she was in psychoanalytic therapy for like 15 in France, 15 mm-hmm. years, three times a week. I don't know that it helped that much. <laughs> you know, and so can you imagine just the investment in time and money three times a week for 15 years, which is that's that's somewhat typical. Yeah. For true for true psychoanalytic work. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you don't find many practitioners and practitioners, there was one in Salt Lake years ago. I don't know if there's anybody who does true psychoanalytic work in Salt Lake after Freud. Uh, to be a true psychoanalytic provider, you have to have I think gone through psychoanalysis again, like twice a week for mm. 10 years before you can wow. consider it. You have to have gone through your own psychoanalysis. So it's quite an investment, but honestly, I don't think it's that helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think there are better ways of coping with stress and helping people manage that I think are more effective and. Yeah. Well, so, so here's what I think, and I think I've said this before in a different context that the idea, I think, between uh, around psychoanalytic is that the therapist itself is kind of a blank slate. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to do true psychoanalytic, you're lying down and the therapist is sitting behind you so you don't see him. Yeah. Over. Yeah. So the idea is that over time, you're going to have that insight that then somehow leads to behavioral change. I think insight is helpful. I think you can get it easier ways than doing psychoanalysis. And then I also think that ultimately what people want is behavior change. They want to be, they want to be different in their lives. And yeah. that's certainly true with couples. But I think even individuals, a lot of individuals, you know, if you're dealing with anxiety or depression, certainly the uh, where it comes from may have something to do with your family of origin. You can have that insight. That doesn't change it, though. You Mm-mm. actually have to do something else. Yeah. And so that's what I think is the most important piece. Anyway, we got away from personality somehow. Um, yeah. You and I do, right? Uh-huh. We go off on these tangents. So, I mean, that's a little bit about 
a Sigmund Freud and right. kind of how he it's shaped. Yeah, how he shaped personality and kind of how he brought about therapy. And he was the pioneer of it. But I mean, I think there's just modern, more better ways. And if anybody is curious, they can just Google Sigmund Freud, sexual, psychosexual developmental phases, and they can yeah. find them. Yeah. Or they can find anything they want on Freud. So it's, it's just a quick right. Google search. So let's talk about personalities that are based in science. So personality quizzes in okay. particular. So okay. if you Google personality quiz, you're going to get a ton of hits. Oftentimes they're just, they're all just mumbo jumbo. They're pseudoscience, right? right. So what do you think, uh, do you know the most common personality assessment that's given? Yes, at least I did two or three weeks ago. <laughs> it's called the Myers-Briggs, MBTI. Okay. Myers-Briggs. Mm -hmm. I have it here somewhere what the MBTI stands for. Anyway, people swear by the Myers-Briggs and you end up getting uh, like uh, three letters or six letters. Mm -hmm. I'm not some sort of letters. I'm an FSJ. And you'll run into people who say, oh, from the Myers-Briggs, I'm a, an FSJ. Like yes. somehow, somehow yeah. I'm supposed to know what what that even means. But the, what a lot of people don't realize is there's no validity or reliability about that measure. Mm, None okay. whatsoever. And the, the validity is that in, in doing any type of assessment, validity means that it can correlate in some way with other known yep. uh, tests of uh, personality. And then reliability is that it can be consistent over time and giving similar results. Yeah. And the Myers-Briggs just doesn't have it. And so you can, as you said, you can probably go online and I mean, we could probably go search right now and find any number of mm -hmm. you know, personality quizzes. But the, there are uh, three or four main ones that I think are, that do have validity and reliability that yeah. if you, if you're a clinician and I used to give these but I, I don't anymore just because it's expensive to buy them. You have to buy them every time they get updated. Mm. And so one is called the MMPI or the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. Now, for a long time, that was the gold standard. That was the mm. thing that people gave. Like when I was in school and I worked at the University Hospital, the psychiatric ward for a while, we gave the MMPI to everybody who came in. Okay. The problem with the MMPI I think, and so it's got good validity and reliability. There are something like 576 questions and it drives people crazy. <laughs> to, <laughs> That's a long time. That's yeah. a lot of time. And if any of you have ever taken this type of assessment, they're going to repeat the same question in slightly different ways mm. many times. Oh, yeah. That would be a bad thing. Well, and so it's an internal measure of how honest you're being and things like that. So there's a reason for it. But when you're actually taking it, it really drives people crazy. So that's the MMPI, a good valid measure. Well, I know one of them is the big five. Well, the, yeah. And that's one that I think people give. It's not one of those that I would say is most used. The other one I was looking for is called the MCMI, which is what the Milan is. But the Milan is, I think, is just as valid as the MMPI, except it has much fewer questions. Mm -hmm. And so it's easier to take. And then the only thing that clinicians know 
clinicians should know about if they give them a lawn is it <laughs> tends to put a loudspeaker on personality traits so it makes them bigger and you have to know that it makes them bigger so it's easier mm-hmm. it's, it's compared to the MMPI. So those are the self-report assessments. And then there are a couple of projective tests. Most people are familiar with the Rorschach, which is, you know, that series of ink blots. Yep. And to give the Rorschach, well, this is a long time ago. I'm pretty sure I took a class in that where, I mean, you have to be trained in how you interpret, you know, each person's response. Mm -hmm. And so there's some subjectivity involved but what you're doing is you're saying okay well tell me about this ink plot and then there's another one called the tat which is i think what you do is they're, they're showing you different images and mm-hmm. you construct a story yeah. and so you know the idea is that we can tell what your personality is based on the story so you mentioned the big five mm-hmm. and and i think i mentioned it under they would call that trait theory yeah and I kind of like it because it's simple, it, mm-hmm. well, more simple, and it's kind of straightforward and, you know, easy for people to understand. And so this is a theory that all of us have these traits on different dimensions. And so, friends, here are the five dimensions. Openness to experience is one, but you can always think of it that there's this opposite piece that's there, too, of, mm-hmm. you know, being close to experience. Uh, one conscientiousness, as opposed to, I guess, I don't know what what's the word that describes not being conscientious, but um, considerate. No, I don't know. Uh, extroversion versus introversion—that's an easy one. Agreeableness versus, I guess, being a real a-hole. <laughs> Disagreeableness. <laughs> Disagreeableness. Um, uh-huh. um, and then neurosis or neuroticism. And a lot of people, uh, the idea of neuroticism throws people off. I, I think it's the word. Some people are afraid of it or they think, oh, I'm neurotic. And really all neurotic means is that, for instance, it's hard for me to relax. I'm always wound up. I get easily upset. So you might be going along, you have an experience, you have two people have the same experience. One gets really upset about it. And that person would be described as being no, more neurotic mm-hmm. and the other person doesn't get as upset. And so they're on that opposite end. I think that people who are neurotic tend to say inflate or uh, really talk about like illnesses, small illnesses, like I've got this cold. So a lot of people have a cold and yeah, it's inconvenient. But if you're neurotic and you have a cold, I'm going to die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and you have the same level of, of cold symptoms. So it's just emotionally and physically for people who are neurotic, it becomes really big. Right. Uh, and and again, my big issue with that is that's going to be very contextual. It's also cultural. <laughs> as well. Yes, as well. So, yeah, that's another important thing. And, and cultural component there. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, for example, maybe two people can experience the same thing, but it may be a trigger for one person. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, and so they may have this, uh, you might call it a neurotic reaction, but mm-hmm. it was a trigger for them. And so, you know, that, but that doesn't necessarily, I guess you can't take just one event and say, oh, that person's really neurotic. Because they might not actually. So, I mean, I guess it's this idea of that mental health exists on a continuum. 
You know? It does. Yeah, which we've talked about before. And that is absolutely true for all of these things. It, it exists on that continuum. But the cultural aspect, the, the same French person that I saw, the, the French, here I'm going to make general, but I actually lived in France for a couple mm-hmm. of years. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with them. And they tend to be pretty emotionally expressive. Yeah. Much more than we are. And the behaviors, at least in this particular person, I think anyone else seeing her would probably label her as histrionic personality disorder. But yeah. for me, she was just French. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's all it was. It, it was a cultural thing. Right. And so, you know, culture definitely plays a big part because in some cultures, it might be normal to just, again, like the French, they're just yeah. very expressive. Right. Right. And, right. I, that's true. And there's and nothing wrong with that. It's no, just, no. It's just different than what we have. And so these tests, to my knowledge, all these tests are really based on our culture, the U.S. Mm-hmm. culture, yeah. which is going to be different than in every other culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you think about how the, how much Asian culture differs from U.S. culture. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. very different. And then you also have to factor in religion. Mm-hmm. Right. And oh, yeah. so and and mm-hmm. oftentimes schemas that are created. I know religion creates a lot of schemas for people. So the way people view certain things, for example, a good word would be the, the word sacrifice. Right. Mm-hmm. And so people yeah. think you hear the word sacrifice. That's going to mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. I grew up in a very religious home and I'm still very devoutly religious. So sacrifice instantly takes me to religion. But for some people, sacrifice might instantly take them to military and people uh-huh. who sacrifice their lives in the military. Or somebody could think of, oh, sacrifice as in a ritual, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. you know, that that's another important thing in personality in terms of how it's formed, how it can differ among people is it's a schema, right? You grow up knowing yes. things only one way. And so you just kind of grow up assuming that's how the world is. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're talking about biological influence, which is really hard to tease out. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I don't even know how they would do this, you know, because with the way we look at genetics nowadays, I think they can pinpoint a lot of genes that, you know, have some relationship to a lot of physical ailments, certainly. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that ever plays out in things like personality, though. Well, I think it's just so, yeah, it it would, it would be, I don't know that it's possible to completely tease it out. So addiction is a good example, right? I mean, you know, some people are more prone to addiction and they call and you hear this term addictive personality. I have an addictive personality. You can take. I actually think there is a marker for that though, that they know. Right. But it it can still manifest differently in different people. You know, you can have identical twins. Right. And so and they may have the same genetic marker and they may grow up in the same environment, but it doesn't. But it's still possible for one to become an alcoholic and the other one to not. Right. Based on their based on their experience, because it's impossible for them to always have the exact same experience. One could have a traumatic experience and then that triggers that gene to activate. And now they're an alcoholic and the other twin isn't an alcoholic because they weren't triggered emotionally. So you bring up a really good point. Um, I mean, lots of times they do twin studies. Yeah. Uh, but the twin studies are based on twins that were separated at birth and raised mm-hmm. in different environments. But you can take, uh, so you can take two children 
I mean, they could be twins or not twins, but biological siblings that raised in the same home. And, you know, you might assume, oh, they've got the same environment. It's not the same environment. No. Because the parents are going to interact with them different. They're going to have a different experience with their peer group. They're going to have a different experience in, say, the uh, education system. Mm -hmm. And so all of that combined really says that... I mean, you have some a similar experience, but it's not identical. And it's not, you, you can't say just because you're in the same family, you're, you're going to have the, the same environmental impact on your personality. It's not going to happen. So my, I, my brothers, I have two older brothers and two younger brothers and the two that are closest to me in age. So are a really good example of this. So my dad is an incredibly hardworking man and he's worked very hard my entire life to provide for his family. And my older brother is the same way. He's a workhorse. He will go and he's very driven. My younger brother, I mean, I look at him and I'm like, who raised you? Because it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to have been by the same person. Right. And Mm -hmm. so he's just, he's not nearly as driven as my older brother, but yet, you know, we were all raised in the same household. We were raised by the same two people. And so, you know, it just goes to show that there's there's all sorts of things that can affect how your personality is going yeah. to develop. And right. so, you know, we're quickly running out of time and we haven't got to personality disorders yet. Okay. And I mean, so, we can talk briefly about them. I yeah. think, that, as I mentioned earlier, personality disorders are are defined as long-term behavior patterns that differ significantly from what is expected. So maybe the reason to study personalities is so that you have, I hate the word normal, but you have maybe what most people experience. Yes. And then, you know, to compare them with something that's significantly different. And so I've never, as a clinician, I've never really found it that helpful to say to someone, you have a personality disorder. Never found it to be helpful Mm -hmm. to label that. Some people like labels, but I think most often it's important to talk about behaviors. I think because you can talk about behaviors and and you can break it down to, well, what are the behaviors that work for you and what are the behaviors that don't work for you without saying, oh, you've got, you know, borderline personality disorder. Again, I don't know that it's that helpful. I think the only thing it could be helpful for is the discourse between clinicians. Anyway, yeah. the, the DSM anyway separates these into three clusters, cluster A, B, and C. And so the, the cluster A personality disorders are odd, eccentric thinking or behavior. Uh, for instance, paranoid personality disorder, schizoid, or schizotypical personality disorder. Cluster B are those that are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional unpredictable thinking and behavior. So like antisocial personality disorder. So remember, antisocial is not, I don't like to be with other people. Antisocial is, I'm not going to follow the typical rules of society. Yeah. Um, Don't follow social norms. Right. Social norms. Borderline personality disorder, which I don't know if we've ever talked, we talked about that in depth. That's a common one. A little bit when we did, when we talked about the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. Okay, right, right, right. Yep. I remember that now. Yep. Histrionic personality disorder and then narcissistic personality disorder. And I think I mentioned long ago, uh, I had this uh, professor who taught 
uh, one of the first classes taught in in graduate school, and it was about personality disorder. She gets up in the first session and says, give me six months with any kid, and I will give you any personality disorder you want. Her implication was, I, I think it's inaccurate, but, and I don't know, she's retired now, but that the parents in their behavior could create any type of personality disorder. But I'm, I mean, and I don't think that's true. I'm just yeah. saying this was, so this was 30 years ago or more. Mm-hmm. And I think the thinking has changed oh, yeah. in, in those 30 years. Now, if you think of borderline personality disorder or even histrionic, there's a very large correlation to childhood abuse, uh, childhood right. sexual abuse in particular. And so I think that instead of saying, okay, it comes from the parenting, going back to what we said, you can be raised in the same home and have all these other different varying environmental mm-hmm. factors and experiences that, you know, come into play. And so it's very complicated. Right. And so if what she said is true, then if one sibling were to develop a personality disorder, all of the siblings would have to. And right. my, my brother, I'm almost positive. I mean, he's never been diagnosed. He never will be is antisocial. I'm, he's got an antisocial personality disorder. But the biggest problem with that personality disorder is they don't see a problem. Right. Right. And they think it's everybody else's fault. Yes. But I want to clarify, you know, what I said. I think in some cases, parenting can create yes. Yes. the personality disorder. Mm-hmm. But that that professor made this general statement that just is not true. No. Uh, because there are so many other factors uh, that come into play. So it's hard to say, well, this is where it comes from. I yeah. think that what you focus on, at least in therapy and treating these people, again, is behavior. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your behaviors. Let's not talk about the diagnosis. Yeah, Not that helpful. Let's talk about how you get throughout life by either you know controlling the behaviors or looking at them in a different way. It's a very different way of, of treating them. So. Mm-hmm. Is, that, yeah. how, is that helpful with the personality disorders? I think, you know, it's important maybe to have that concept of people who are acting kind of outside the norm. But again, in the end, it's just let's talk about your behaviors and what works, what doesn't. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, this was certainly uh, an interesting discussion. We went all over the place tonight, didn't we? <laughs> We did, but it was good. Yeah, I, I I, think it was pretty interesting. So next week, we're going to try something a little different. So we're going to do a marital case study. So we're going to give you a situation of a couple who has been, who is married and who are having difficulties. And we're going to break it down for you. And we're going to, I guess, kind of introduce you to what a therapy session might be like. We'll be, co- we'll be co-marital therapists. How's co-marital that? therapists. That yeah. sounds great. Okay. It's going to be fun. (laughs) All right. We will see you all next week. Have a good week, everyone. Have a question for Dr. Burton? How about a topic you'd like us to cover? Send us an email at mentalhealthpod21 at gmail.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Liz Lang. Music is by Audio Lounge. 